What's up, family? You are tuned into Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. From KPFA Radio and the Pacifica Network, I'm your host, Kat Brooks. The new legislative session is upon us, and I want to spend some time walking through just a few of the more progressive bills folks are going to be pushing. Joining me to discuss is Eric Morrison-Smith, the executive director for the Alliance for Boys and Men of Color, a national network of community and advocacy organizations coming together to advance race and gender justice by transforming policies that are failing boys and men of color, their families and communities. Good morning, Eric. Hey, good morning, Kat. How you doing? I'm doing good, my G. How are you? Yeah, you know, I'm doing all right. We out here, you know, trying to live the dream. But not not the American dream, no. Just the, the, the dream that we are the, the the dream that we are defining ourselves, not the American dream. Let me be clear about okay. that. Lizzie, you know, you know, the interview was about to take a whole other turn. We were not going to be talking about policy there for a second. <laughs> yeah, I know. See, that's that's the issue with just saying these, you know, uh, these lines like that. I got to be more clear. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Eric, for I mean, I just I just read sort of like the blurb that's on y'all's website, but um, for folks who don't know, I mean, this is your first time, I think, on the air with me. Um, but for, so for folks who don't know, say a little bit more about the Alliance for Boys and Men of Color, your network, like the breadth of the folks that are engage, uh, involved and the work that y'all engage in, because policy is a piece of it, but there's so much more. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I feel like you covered a lot of it well. You know, the Alliance is a network that's been around now for 11 years, and it's a network of 200 organizations, you know, mostly across California, but some nationally as well that are really just coming together to, to both um, support grassroots organizations with their local campaigns and then also convene grassroots organizations to be able to transform um, state policies that might be acting as like a barrier to the local work. Um, we try our best to, to do a lot of that work with the, an abolitionist framework, but there's a lot of um, contradictions in that work, especially at the state level. But, you know, that's sort of, the, the guiding principles that we're trying to do this work with. Um, and I think the, the main thing for us is we're constantly trying to center our grassroots organizations and the things that they want to get done in our work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, each year we um, prioritize and co-sponsor anywhere between 10 to 12 policies, um, but we're working in coalition with grassroots partners and won't sign on to a policy without our grassroots partners involved. So, you know, it's a little bit about the work, and we work on a variety of issues. We try to do all of our work with the intersectional lens. So we work on, you know, economic justice, education equity, um, policing and community safety and justice, and um, also have, like, a portfolio of gender justice work that's really focused on um, ending intimate partner violence and trying to shift the state approach away from punitive practices to more healing-centered practices. So, yeah, that's just a little bit about the network and, and the work that, you know, we've done and we've had the opportunity to work together on a variety of bills, which I'm sure we'll get to talk about some of that, too. We, we have. And, and that's why uh, actually why I was giggling. We did have James Birch and Melina, uh, James Birch of APTP and Melina Abdullah of Black Lives Matter Grassroots on last week, I believe, to talk about the Steve Bradford shenanigans around the cops had a mm. traffic bill. Um, mm. So my, my listeners are aware, right, that is not always a smooth path. And um, ABMOC was critical, right, in us being able to organize um, and interrupt what was a divide and conquer nod to police around a policing bill. Um, and that happens, right, sometimes. The the, yeah. the 
holding on to your values, right, sometimes puts you in direct conflict with the folks that in theory, well, no, technically you need to, to get your bills passed. But talk about why that's not getting the bill passed is not always the be all end all. Talk about the importance of the conversations that are generated, the alliances, right? When folks move together in principle and unity that are, that are forged and, and yeah. what ultimately ends up being power of the people. And I, and I think you probably have one or two examples uh, uh, of times where maybe it started off, right? Real shaky and things become two year bills. But by the end of that process, you get actually what you were looking for. Yeah, for sure. So I think that, you know, one critical piece that at least I've learned over these years, and I've had other like mentors like Mark, who you are aware of, who's kind of taught me some of these things. But, you know, it's not just about getting the bill passed and signed to the law. It's also about how you do it. Right. And the narratives and the way that you communicate about the bill, because those things can really help to shift like the public's perspective and educate them on why we're doing a thing a certain way. Um, you know, doing bills with community is an opportunity to like build power so that when you actually get the thing passed, you could actually have the power to implement it. And you already have communities, um, you know, buy in and awareness about the bill. Cause sometimes like there are state policies that get passed and because community wasn't involved throughout the process, they have like no clue that this thing happened and then nothing changes at the local level. Um, so, you know, being able to like really engage community throughout the process, you know, do it in a principled way is both a way to like challenge the status quo and push back against these kind of like paternalistic ways of doing policy. Um, and at the same time is a good way to ensure that the policy is actually implemented um, effectively on the ground, um, which is obviously like that's that's what we do the work to make sure that it actually makes change on the ground. Um, so that's at least the way that, that we think about it. And that's obviously um, not the general uh, sentiment at the Capitol. You know, sometimes you got folks who sort of like think of themselves as a savior and don't think that they need to be working with community to get these things done. Uh, but that's really the only way you get it done effectively in our minds. And also at the Capitol, you find people who believe that policy is the pathway, right, to building a more just and equitable society. You know, I say often, I mean, you've heard me say it, um, we ain't going to get free at the ballot box and ain't no politician going to pave a road for liberation for us. But it is a strategy. Right. In a much larger toolbox. And if you could just talk about the the role policy plays in helping achieve some of the the goals um, of of the network and of the organizations that are in the network. Right. Fighting day to day to uplift our most marginalized communities. Yeah. And I'm sorry. Could you repeat that question one more time? My phone is cut off. My apologies. No, you could. Uh, it's the the joys of distance radio. Um, I was I was <laughs> talking about if you could talk about policy. I mean, you did just a little bit. I guess I'm asking you to to go just a little bit deeper. Is policy a, a you know a, a a tool in the toolbox, part of a yeah. larger strategy um, that that you and your network partners are engaged in? Yeah, for sure. So we kind of take the approach that like policy is not you know, sort of the the silver bullet to ending uh, these systems of oppression. It's really a way for like one, for us to be able to mitigate harm um, because, you know, there are opportunities at the state level to be able to, um, you know, reduce harm when it's happening. Um, We also use state policy to reallocate resources to community-based organizations. Um, So, I mean, obviously like the Crisis Act is one example of that. 
Um, but we also, um, you know, we're working on this big budget ask for $44 million that would be focused on um, providing resources to community-based organizations that are trying to end intimate partner violence. Uh, but what we're saying is those resources can't continue to go to law enforcement, can't continue to go to these punitive systems, and instead need to be going directly to community and really trying to build up that community-based infrastructure that a lot of our network partners are already starting to do on the ground. Um, so those are like some of the things that, you know, we're constantly, um, you know, thinking about. And then the other big thing is like, it, the reality is there is already a lot of amazing work happening across California at the local level, but sometimes there are state barriers that don't allow the work to go even further. Um, so sometimes we'll use state policy as a way to change those, um, those barriers just so that our local organizers can go even further at the local level and, and do whatever it is that they might need to do. Um, so those are like some of the examples of how like we think about state policy, but it, it's always for an end to help, you know, our local grassroots organizations be able to, you know, to do what they do best and um, be able to push uh, the issues even further. Yeah, APTP, we call the types of policy work that, that we uh, collectively engage in together, you know, radical reforms, reforms that don't reinforce the status yeah. quo, but yeah. chip away at that. And and to that, that end, I want to just uplift again what you just said about the, the budget piece, domestic and sexual violence services and programs, $44 million. That's critical, and we've talked about it on this show, because the Violence Against Women Act, VAWA, right, which ha- holds millions, gazillions of dollars of federal funds, um, for you to get that money as an organization, you either you have to commit to working with law enforcement. Mm, and and that, yeah. that piece of the pot is very small. And the rest of the pot is for law enforcement, basically, and yeah. DAs and counties, right, um, that are c- still committed to using the carceral state to interrupt gender-based violence, which we all know doesn't work. Um, okay, so I, wanna, I want you to be able to run through some of the other bills. Um, so that was under the Healing Together and Gender Justice section. Youth Leadership and Justice, you're moving several bills around youth leadership and justice. Talk to us about AB 1512, Preserving Benefits for Foster Youth. Yeah, so you basically, um, this is a bill that's really focused on ensuring that foster youth are getting direct resources to be able to, you know, make their transition out of the foster um, care system. And basically the issue is the federal government is sending down millions of dollars to states uh, and then the states are reallocating those resources to counties and the money should actually be going directly to the foster youth. We're talking about anywhere between a couple of hundred to a thousand dollars per month, but the counties are holding on to that money and basically saying we're providing services to foster youth, we are housing foster youth, so it makes the most sense for us to hold on to those resources. When other states have already said, like, no, it makes the most sense for these um, resources to be going directly to the foster youth in some type of saving account or bank so that once they age out of the system, they have sort of these um, resources that they can use to make their transition and, and quite honestly use it for whatever they feel are their needs, whether it be, you know, housing, um, education, whatever the case might be. So this is a big bill that we're working on with Assemblymember Brian that would ensure that um, these resources are going directly to foster youth. And again, it's just a, another way of trying to put money directly into people's pockets 
rather than, you know, having the counties hold on to that money. Do one more talking about our youth, and then I want to move on a couple of the sections before I got to let you go. AB 702, AB y'all's Assembly Bill 702 Promise Act. Yeah. Yeah, so this is another big bill, and, you know, again, it's kind of aligned with what we were talking about as well, about um, reinvesting resources into community-based infrastructure and not law enforcement. But basically, Mm -hmm. each year, the state gives millions of dollars, and we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars um, for grants that are supposed to be supporting youth who have been involved with the juvenile justice system. And this was money that advocates have actually fought for in the past. And in the implementation, what we found is that most of this money is actually going to probation. It's going to other law enforcement entities to, you know, backfill for their salaries and their benefits and those sorts of things. So this is a bill that we're working with, uh, with a bunch of other co-sponsors and assembly member Corey Jackson, who, you know, shout out to him. He's part of the ABMOC network before he was a legislator. Um, to ensure that at least 95% of those funds are allocated to community-based organizations um, that are really focused on taking that healing-centered approach and who aren't connected to law enforcement, probation, and some of these other more punitive systems. Um, you know, and, and we're really trying to ensure that the, the community-based organizations that are getting the resources are really coming from a healing-centered, restorative, and trauma-informed um, approach rather than um, approach that's rooted in punishment. Okay, and all all right, Matt Haney, let's talk about AB 1226. Uh, Haney, former San Francisco uh, Board of Supervisor, prioritize proximity. What's this bill? Yeah, and and this one is one that's, you know, uh, particularly close to the heart because, um, you know, my father, he was incarcerated for 24 years of my life and you know, for 10 of those years, when I was between the ages of eight and um, 18, I didn't get to see my father because, you know, he was sent to a prison that was six to 10 hours away from where we and my mother lived. Um, So this bill is actually focused on requiring the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation to place incarcerated people in the institution that is closest to where their child lives um, and just, you know, continue to ensure that children with incarcerated parents can continue to be connected, um, you know, to their loved ones who are incarcerated. Um, and, and obviously the, the political objective is, at, at, you know, to, to close prisons and, and to, you know, to release our people. But this is also one of those ways that we mitigate harm and ensure that, you know, families continue to be connected um, while we still at the same time fight against the prison industrial complex. Y'all are also doing some stuff around cremigation. Talk to me about AB 1306, stopping ICE transfers. Yeah, so this is a bill that is a follow-up to the Vision Act, um, which was AB 937 last year. And basically, you know, there's this practice in California where, you know, we have people who are part of our immigrant community um, communities who are coming over and, you know, they might get in trouble for the law for a variety of reasons and they do their time in jails or prisons, but then immediately after are getting transferred to ice, um, and getting deported. Um, and that's obviously like this, you know, very unnecessary practice. It's basically a double punishment for people who are part of our communities. And through this bill, we're trying to protect, um, our immigrant community members and ensure that, you know, they aren't instantly, or at all transferred to ICE after they do their time 
in prisons. And again, there's um, there's some nuances there because you know you know how the capital works. There's it doesn't apply to all different types of crimes, but we're trying to right. you know you're just trying to to, to sort of make some progress on this issue now and then really make the, the big transformative change in the future because, um, you know, the Capitol hasn't been prepared for this type of issue just yet. All right. And then one more, but I, I need you to do it quickly because I got to go to our striking okay. school workers and teachers in Los Angeles. Um, but on that note, there's also a, a bunch of education equity bills. Let's talk about uh, Senate Bill 274, Nancy Skinner, in defiant suspensions, keep students in school. Okay, yeah, and I'll make this one quick. Basically, you know, this is a building off of the work from SB 419, which was passed in 2019, that ended the practice of allowing teachers and administrators to use defiance to suspend and expel students and basically push them off the campuses. Uh, We got that passed in in 2019 with our partners, and SB 274 is really focused on um, expanding those protections the high school students as well, so teachers can't continue to use this sort of catch-all, you know, defiance um, practice to be able to push out our students. And it's really just about ensuring that we're keeping them in school. And, you know, one of the other things that I'll just mention really quickly is the bill would also end suspensions and expulsions for truancy and tardiness as well. So this is a bill that's really focused on trying to keep our students in school, connected to services, and not getting pushed out and pushed in to the school to prison pipeline. And then, Eric, last, last thing, right? Like, these bills do not pass themselves. There will be a time period where, where these organizations and the network will be calling to the community, right, to the folks that listen to the show, to, to call their legislators uh, legislators to show up, et cetera. If folks want to follow uh, the Alliance of Boys and Men of Color and keep track of how things are moving through the season and when their people power may be necessary, where should they go? Yeah, I think social media is one of the easiest ways to, to stay updated. So it's um, at Alliance for BMOC, Alliance for BMOC. Um, and then folks could always reach out to me directly, you know, um, or, you know, we have a, a website, uh, www.abmoc.org, and they could, uh, you know, get updates on our website as well. Great. I appreciate you coming on, my brother. This was a, a good conversation. Look forward to having you back again soon. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. I'll talk to you soon, Kat. You've been listening to Law and Disorder, a podcast where we expose the cracks in our system, agitate for resistance, and collectively build a new world in which all of us can thrive. That's it for this episode, family. You can find more information about topics and guests in this episode's show notes. Law and Disorder is produced at KPFA. That's listener-supported radio on the Pacifica Network. The show is produced by Jesse Strauss and hosted by me, Kat Brooks. Our theme music was composed by Steve Raskin of Fort Knox Five. If you like what you heard, please follow us on social media at Law and Dis, that's D-I-S, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Feel free to holler at us about something you heard or send us a show idea at lawanddisorder at kpfa.org. You can also find our content live at 8 a.m. weekdays on KPFA. That's 94.1 FM in the Bay Area. Our show and all of KPFA's programs are funded exclusively by you, the listener. And if you're in a position to support us, please donate today at kpfa.org. Take care of yourself and take care of each other. We all we got, fam.